Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 35, From Father to Son, in which Sinusaret I, second king of the 12th dynasty, begins to rule on his own and ensure his father's legacy thanks to a propagandistic document known as the teachings of Amenemhat I. Senusaret's arrival in Ichtawi, the capital established by his father, probably occurred several days after the old king had been violently set upon by his guards. Either Amenemhat was dead already, or he now lingered briefly, soon to pass on to the next world and become Osiris. Time was of the essence, and Senusaret could not waste it. The conventional view among Egyptologists today holds that a night following a king's death was a time of chaos, a no-man's land between order and disorder. The chaos lasted all night, at least on a theological level, in which time and reality hovered on the brink of unravelling. Widespread mourning can be assumed to have occurred. Whether a king was genuinely loved or not, his death threatened the existing reality. But then, as the sun rose, a new king was revealed, and Ma'at returned to her rightful place. This was known as the appearing in glory, or appearing as a god, the two most common references to a king's ascension, and continuous renewal of the cosmos day by day. When Sinusaret appeared in glory, he had now been a co-ruler of Egypt for ten years, serving alongside his father. Now, the kingdom was his to lead as he wished. So what did Senusaret want to achieve? The answer comes to us second-hand, through the supremely important text known as the Teachings of Amenemhat. This work not only describes the general events of the late king's last night on earth, but also lays out his supposed views on governance and kingship. Whether the teachings of Amenemhat are actually by Amenemhat, or a retrospective composed by Senusaret, is unclear. But it doesn't really matter, for it provides a key snapshot of royal attitudes at this particular moment in history. It covers several different mindsets, and encourages different approaches to different situations. It is, in short, a small but intriguing window into the mind of a divine ruler of Egypt during the early Middle Kingdom. So, what was going through Sinusaret's mind, and what did he prioritize in these early days of his sole reign? The first step was the apprehension and punishment of the conspirators, whomever they were. Queen Neferu may have been under some early suspicion, for in the tale of Sinue, there are vague hints that, as a servant of the queen's, Sinue feared he would be thought an accomplice to the crime. Later, when Sinusaret wanted to bring Sinue home, he assured the exile that the queen was alive and healthy, and that she had not suffered under his reign. This, I think, may be more literary fancy than anything else. It harks back to the trials against a royal wife conducted after the assassination, or attempted assassination, of King Teti early in Dynasty VI. It also recalls the influence of powerful women 
such as Kentikaus I and Kentikaus II, who wielded enormous authority over the court during the late 4th and early 5th dynasties. Queen Neferu, wife of Senusaret I, may have had enormous influence, but the idea that she was implicated in the conspiracy may be a comparison with other figures, rather than a strict historical reality. But I am merely speculating. Queen Neferu may not have been complicit in the king's murder, but someone surely was. It was this knowledge that likely kept Senusaret up at night, and led him to include the following passages in the teachings of his father. Quote, O you who appear as a god, hear what I shall say to you, that you may be king and achieve abundance of good fortune. Be on your guard against all who are subordinate to you, when there occurs something shocking and unexpected. Do not approach your servants in your loneliness. Trust no brother, know no friend, make no intimates, for there is no profit in it. When you go to rest, guard your own heart, for no man has partisans on the day of trouble. I gave to the poor man, I cherished the orphan, and I caused the one who had nothing to attain wealth like he who was wealthy. But it was the one who ate my bread who raised armies. He to whom I had given my hand created terror. Those who wore my fine linen looked on me as a shadow, and they who anointed me with myrrh undercut me with water. My heart bleeds for a Menemhat. As the Chinese proverb says, it is cold at the top of a mountain. The life of an absolute monarch cannot be anything but lonely. Whether you have active enemies or not, the fear of opening yourself to confidence and trust is a powerful one. Whether Amenemhat was right to suggest that Senusaret seal himself off from confidence or not, I can empathize with his viewpoint. The teachings then turn to the most important act of Senusaret's early career, the burial of his father and the healing of his wounds with proper rituals and embalming. Amenemhat commands his heir to make a funeral oration that has never been heard before. Essentially, give me the mother of all send-offs, for I was supreme among Egypt's lineage of rulers. Quote, I travelled to Elephantine, and I turned back to the delta. I have stood at the limits of the land, and I have seen its middle as well. I have attained the limits of my power by my strong arm and by my nature. It was I who made barley and loved grain. The Nile god showed me every respect in every open place, and no one went hungry in my years. No one went thirsty. Men dwelt in peace through what I had done talking of me, for everything that I commanded was in good order. I have curbed lions. I have carried off crocodiles. I have crushed the people of Wawat, or Nubia. I have carried off the Nubian Magi. I have made the Asiatics slink like dogs. I have built for myself a house adorned with gold, its ceiling of lapis lazuli, its walls of silver, the doors of copper and the door bolts of bronze it having been made for eternity and prepared for everlasting. We have here some of the classic tropes of Egyptian kingship. Victory in warfare, supreme personal and physical power, the subjugation of foreigners, 
and the building of splendid monuments. By the text's reckoning, Amenemhat is one who feeds his people, and increases the prosperity of his realm. It all sounds fairly standard, and almost ideal for a ruler. But, the text is also rather condescending and disdainful of those who had served Amenemhat and obeyed him as his subjects. Speaking of those closer to him, and his attitudes towards such outsiders as females and servants, Amenemhat's or Senusaret's words become harsh and gloating. Quote, I will give you good advice, because I neither fear my enemies nor even think about them. I take no cognizance of the slackness of servants. Have women ever marshaled the ranks? Are brawlers nourished within a house? A sense of disdain is palpable. This is a disdain that, like it or not, was probably fairly common among the Egyptian elite. Although we can talk about ma'at and concepts of benevolent rule, the autocratic power of the Egyptian king and the wealth-based status of his elite subjects led to an occasionally powerful sense of condescension towards those at the lower levels of the hierarchy. It is the less pleasant side of Egyptian rule, one discussed at great length by Egyptologist Toby H. Wilkinson, whose Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt is one of the few modern histories to really attempt to describe this aspect of life under the kings. Many historians, afraid to make a judgment on history, will sidestep the issue altogether and discuss more detailed or anachronistic elements of the culture. This is useful, of course, it's the very foundation of academia, but it does mean that we often look at Egypt through rose-tinted glasses. I'm certainly guilty of this, but one shouldn't ignore the fact that the teachings of Amenemhat have a strong undercurrent of disdain for those lower down on the social order. It is a disdain built on the perception of effectiveness. Amenemhat condescends towards women because they have never raised armies or led troops. He bemoans the slackness of servants, as though people exist solely for productivity that benefits him. And finally, he levels a touch of spite on the more unruly element of the population, those prone to fights or disturbing the peace. Without making too harsh a criticism of Amenemhat, this was 4,000 years ago after all, I don't think we should forget that Egyptian kings could and did display traits that would be loudly decried within our own society. We don't have to think of them as brutal dictators to recognize they lived in a conservative, hierarchical society, in which wealth and status dictated one's outlook on life to an extraordinary degree. As part of the public send-off for Amenemhat, which the teachings really is, these attitudes would not have raised eyebrows among the king's contemporaries. He was merely expressing views that would have been fairly common among the elite members of society. But I highlight these points to remind you that as much as we can be fascinated by these men and their families, they were not necessarily people whom we would like if we met. The king's words now come to their final message. A tender send-off for the late Amenemhat, and a blessing upon his son. But of course, being a ruler of Egypt, Amenemhat's words simultaneously encourage his son, while praising himself 
for being such an excellent king. Quote, O my son Senusaret, may your legs walk. You are my own heart, and my eyes watch you. You were born in an hour of happiness, in the presence of the sun folk, and they give you praise. See, I have made a beginning, and you have arranged the end. I have moored what is in your heart, leaving the white crown for the seed of the god. The fortification is in good order. Ritual vessels are in the barge of Ray. The kingship came into being in my presence, and there are none who could achieve my deeds of valour. Erect monuments, embellish your causeway, fight for truth against falsehood, because he does not desire it in his majesty's presence. It has come, happily, to an end. And so it had. Amenemhat was gone into the west, becoming Osiris. He was placed in the burial chamber beneath his pyramid at Al-Lisht. The pyramid itself, while mostly complete when the king died, needed a few last touches. The funeral temple in front of the pyramid, for instance, has a large number of blocks carved with the name of Senusaret rather than Amenemhat. This suggests that the temple was completed in haste after the king's death, when Senusaret needed to fully legitimize his succession by conducting the proper funerary rituals for his father. The tomb itself now housed Amenemhat in an elaborately decorated coffin, of which only the smallest fragments have survived. The coffin itself was a rectangular container, similar to those used throughout the Old Kingdom. It would be placed lengthways from north to south, with the king's head at the north. His body was laid on its side, facing to the east, in order that it might look out through a pair of eyes painted on the eastern side of the coffin. As it faced the rising sun, it would receive the life-giving energy of the solar god Ray, and the king would be rejuvenated in the next world. On the western panel of the coffin, the god Anubis was painted as embalmer and protector of the dead, conveying them safely into the field of reeds. Now, I say this with a caveat. The coffin of Amenemhat was probably rectangular, but it is also possible that the coffin was one of the very few anthropoid coffins which begin to appear in the 11th and 12th dynasties. Although they did not become truly common until the Second Intermediate Period and New Kingdom, anthropoid coffins, which are coffins in the shape of a human, were nevertheless an exciting development in the artistic style of funerary equipment. Unfortunately, not a lot is known about the early development of this type of coffin. They began as simple casings around the body itself, placed within the rectangular coffins. To the best of my knowledge, the earliest example of one of these is the burial coffin of Princess Aishet, buried in the reign of Montuhotep II. Although I have not found any images of her mummy casing, I believe it is currently held in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. What is known is that in this period, the coffins were usually straightforward, mostly undecorated and made of wood. The head and headdress of which you're so familiar with from New Kingdom examples, were rendered in exquisite detail, but the body was often left undecorated. Amenemhat's burial was probably not dissimilar to this. 
Although he may have had an anthropoid coffin, it is equally likely that he was buried within a rectangular coffin with a human-shaped casing inside. As he looked to the east from his home in the field of reeds, Amenemhat could rest easy, knowing that his son and heir, Senusaret I, was in command. His teachings, such as they were, had been passed on to his son, and, with some creative additions, his son had written them down and published them for the elites of Egypt. The result would be a reign of some thirty years, giving Egypt a continuation of the stability Amenemhat had brought after the end of the 11th dynasty. In the next episode, we will turn our attention to Senusaret's building program. Perhaps his most significant contribution in this regard is the establishment of a court and chapel at a small site in Upper Egypt. Today, it is Senusaret to whom we give the credit for beginning royal work at the magnificent Temple of Karnak. <laughs>